Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners and our watchers now as we go into the world of YouTube with more of our content to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and this is a episode of the Hanover House. The Hanover House has been gone for what feels like six months, maybe more, I don't know. Uh, but the, the point behind the Hanover House has been to gather some of the guys from the London Lyceum together to talk about uh, topics that matter, topics that don't matter, and to have more of a low-key sort of conversation um, just about whatever ends up coming up. So it's usually been a lot of fun. It's supposed to be, let's let's model a little bit of friendship, let's encourage some friendship and camaraderie about things, let's disagree about some stuff, uh, and do it with, with charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism, as we like to do. So I have no idea where this is going to go today, because I, for the first time, I think usually when I come into these episodes, I have a very clearly defined topic of we're going to top, talk about X, and we're going to spend all of our time talking about that, but today I don't have that. So we've got... Um, Hunter Heinzman with us, who does our book reviews. We have Jacob Denhollander, who um, gives us, you know, all the the name recognition and the style. And then we have Morgan Bird, who who writes the confessional books for us. So it, this is a great group here um, of guys to discuss whatever it is that comes to our mind. Jacob is sitting in front of John Owen. If you're listening to this, so you know that he's definitely the smartest person in the room. So. Also, John Calvin, I can't tell what else is behind you. That, that just tells you that I don't know all the covers. I see Moeller and some other people. So I, the question is, do I see Aquinas? Because then I'd have to kick you out. Uh-oh. <laughs> yes, put him in the corner. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I don't know. I mean, we, we can talk about uh, past episodes that we've done uh, or recent ones that we've done or things that have come to your mind. I mean, we've we've got several book reviews in the pipeline that should come out relatively soon. Um, what are other questions that have been ongoing? I mean, so if you guys aren't members of the, the Slack community, you should because we just talk about all sorts of stuff. And there's questions that are always going on there. People are talking about. I guess the real presence of Christ in the in the supper earlier today, and it was more complicated than I was able to give my headspace to. <laughs> I think that's one of the things. Black Channel is like simultaneously, uh, it keeps me in the loop on like the fact that man, there's a lot of different views and people kind of charitably hold different positions, but I'm also reminded how. Um, unequipped a, a something like a slack channel is to actually have a, a, a realistic arc like a healthy dialogue back and forth so it's like it's this tension of like oh these conversations are so good and helpful but like this is such a terrible medium to have these conversations and uh just write articles about these things yeah it's, it's like you go in the slack channel and you're just like man we just need to have like a get together yeah start down there the dangerous road of a conference. Oh, oh, you know, <laughs> just do a conference, a conference with no speakers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm pretty sure our Pentecostal friends do that on a regular basis, don't they? <laughs> they might. <laughs> we'll just hide. And so we, we have, we have one viewer right now live. Oh, Joseph's here. So yeah, LLO conference. Let's go. I like it. So he is also what, a. Me- that's what the world needs is another conference. You know. 
we need like as many conferences as we can get. Well, they, they need our conference. You know, they need our voices. So, and we need the honorariums. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Yes, let's. Oh, what, are, what, are you guys, what are you guys reading these days? Anything interesting? Hunter, you're you're the reading man, and Morgan, I don't know what all you read. You tell me what you guys yeah, do. I, I mean, I'm reading mainly books that have been assigned to me to read. Um, you know, different. I'm in a, a, a Reformation seminar, or Reformation Roots of English Puritanism seminar. Um, so I'm really wanting to dive in on John John Owen, um, and particularly his hermeneutics. Uh, I'm an early church guy, uh, so I. I I'm a fan of the way that they approach the biblical text and and see a lot of continuity uh, between them and the Reformation, post-Reformation, and Puritans, uh, even in, uh, up into the English Baptists, um, guys like John Gill and, and others, and think that we've, you know, on the hermeneutical side of things, I like the, the pre-modern view. Uh, so I like to see connections there, see how they're similar, see how they're different. So that's one of the things I'm diving into. Um, I've been working slowly through his, um, um, Jacob, if you could help me out. It's the spirit, it's like the, um, the spiritual sense, uh, or that, that's not the right title of it. I can't think of it. It's in like Greek or something. I'll look, I'll look it up real quick. But that's the main thing. I mean, there are so many oh, yeah. books it's that he's written. Syn- uh, Pneumatike. I don't know how to. Um, okay. fucking... so, so the not the knock against the early church hermeneutic, of course, you know, at a seminary kind of coming fresh into seminary level is, you know, allegorical interpretation. Do you do you think then, in your opinion, that that is kind of an overblown accusation, or do you think that it's that uh, some of the reformed authors aren't as scared of that kind of early uh, exegesis um, as we are. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think uh, like Peter Martin's has done some good work on, you know, with origin in particular of showing sometimes like the categories of typology and allegory being imposed upon him uh, in ways that sometimes he's doing typology in a way that we would say is allegory. Um, and he's doing, he's saying he's doing allegory when we would say that's more like typology. Uh, so the, um, Peter Martin has some good work on that. Um, Liz Clark has done some, some work as well in her, her, her uh, textbook, Reading Renunciation is one of those. Just kind of outlining some of the conversations on pre-modern exegesis and, um, how sometimes with the ways that we categorize things really doesn't fit. And it's a lot broader than that. So like when you think of interpreting wisdom in Proverbs 8 is Christ. It's not really typology. It's not really allegory. It's, it's a different kind of uh, intertextual connection. Um, reading the wonderful counselor mm-hmm. from Isaiah nine, Irenaeus reads that back in Genesis one twenty six twenty seven. You know that's that's a, it's, it's an inter, they have a very intertextual uh, way of reading the Bible, where the text itself is the reference, um, and they make they make connections across that. Um, uh, you know, Justin Martyr's my guy, so I focus a little bit more on him. So I can tell you a little bit more about his stuff, but um, you know I don't think their conclusions are always right. Uh, but I think the the way they approach the text, uh, really, this idea of 
you know, there is some kind of illumination that's needed to be understood, to understand the text. It's not just a method. Uh, there is a, you're connected to the living rule of faith, uh, that is confessed in the community of faith. And mm-hmm. you're reading, um, you're doing theology, you know, in that vein and contributing, um, to the rule of faith at, just continuously. So all I heard from that is, Hunter, you're a Roman Catholic because you're reading Peter Martin's yeah. and all these patristic guys. That's what I'm taking away from this yeah. conversation right now. I mean, uh, Morgan. Well, I won't tell you yeah. what I'm reading. Then. So, so Morgan's pointed me to you know some of the uh, Gill's commentaries that have been really helpful that are in the same kind of vein of thinking. So, and I know I know Owen has. Would you say Gill is? Hunter, I mean, you, you guys tell me, is Gill interpreting Scripture the same way as the, the Church Fathers are? I most recently, well, what, what Hunter and I were talking about the other day was Song of Solomon, and um, we, got, we, we don't have to go down this road, okay? We don't have to go down this road. But um, I don't know, Hunter, how much time you spend in it, but um, what I like about Gill is he's just so conversant with, like, all the different views— and so he'll lay out, you know, hey, here's four or five different views on this one particular thing. And he'll even kind of he'll he's more comfortable not taking a hard stand on like this is the definite interpretation of this. Mm-hmm. I, I think he's a little bit more comfortable with um, us nourishing our souls from the text uh, as long as we're uh, like, I think you bring up the rule of faith, not, not that he doesn't ever say, I think this is the right position he does, but he's just a little bit more comfortable, especially with books that are more poetic, uh, with, with taking, uh, a little bit more Liberty, as long as we're within the theological bounds, uh, to take a little bit of Liberty with how we interpret things. So, which I think is interesting, you know, for a guy like Gil, who obviously cared a lot about doctrine and, and had strong positions on things, but, um, that's, I really have enjoyed reading through his song of songs, um, stuff for that very reason, just to see how he's, uh, willing to work through all the different views and, and find nourishment from different perspectives. Yeah. I've been, so. I've been mainly focused on chapter two, uh, really just a few verses at the beginning and then verses 14 through 17. And he's really just making some, some pretty beautiful and, and really pastoral connections to Christ in that. And. And I would say, yeah. you know, Morgan, I know Irenae, Irenaeus and some of the stuff he does, he's not he's not dogmatic. Augustine's not dogmatic. I think in on the, like his Angel of the Lord section where he kind of actually contradicts, uh, or not contradicts, but goes against Augustine's view of the Angel of the Lord. And um, not like naming him, takes a different position. And But they're both, they, they operate with, uh, Augustine at least is operating with a, a good spirit of humility and putting forth a, uh, a interpretation that could be uh, wrong. It could be right. Uh, he says the other the other interpretation could be right, but if it is right, he's particularly going against an Arian expression of the angel of the Lord being Christ in the Old Testament. He says it, it doesn't mean that Christ is less than. Um, so there's a there is that kind of they're they're talking through different things, um, and they may make different connections from the, in a different passage in one context that they will in another. I was just, this is a question maybe for you guys. I wonder if like post all the discussion and hoopla over inerrancy, if there's almost a, this feeling of pressure that when we interpret scripture, we have to give like a definitive interpretation every single time. Because if we, if we ever 
kind of veer off or aren't 100% sure what a text means, then we're kind of moving towards uh, a position that would undercut or undermine inerrancy or something like that. And it almost adds this pressure. But I wonder if that's something that you guys think is maybe part of why we're not almost not able to be as humble about our Bible interpretation is the pressure we might feel to not fall out of step with the inerrancy kind of conversation. I think, I think you're identifying a, a, a certain phenomenon. I don't know that I would necessarily pin that entirely on um, the inerrancy discussion. I think, uh-huh. I think you might have some apologetic instincts going on there. Uh-huh. Um, you have some of the instincts of, you know, this, well, I'll, I'll say, I'll say um, modernity and see Jordan uh, going to a flush. <laughs> um, but by kind of kind of uh, we we can tend to approach scripture as a uh, a mine from which to extract truths, right? Um, and so going back to your point about you know where, where where Gil was more content being nourished from the Word of God, not just because he was extracting truth from it, but because hey, there's there's just something about um, ingesting or, or being washed in the word that has power that might transcend our cognition or our ability to necessarily articulate how the word is um, impacting us. And I think that's a very, a very interesting um, idea that, you know, and a lot of times too, it, it, it can be, it could be encouraging to you just to get into the word of God, you know, like, mm-hmm. You don't have to sit there. You don't have to know. You don't have to know all the Greek or Hebrew. You don't know have to um, understand all the context. Just read the Word of God. And allow the Holy Spirit to minister that to your soul. And uh, yeah, like it. You don't have to figure it all out uh, in order to benefit from it. Well, and I think that to be. To be fair to Gil, too, it's, it's not that he's being sloppy. I mean, that's certainly not what it is. It's not like he's yeah. intentionally just taking sort of a broad bros, broad brush approach to the scripture. That's not it. It's yeah. just he's looking through history and he's saying, hey, like he's going even to like just some Jewish interpretations that were that 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 aren't even related to sort of the Christian tradition. And he's even bringing those into account. Yeah. And uh, it's cool because he's able to make this jump where because he has this this uh, typological uh, arsenal he's able to see how the Jews were interpreting it with related to things like the Exodus and then he just takes it the next step and so he mm. just makes the typological step so he's like hey if they sort of brought it all the way up to this point where they're like oh this is the, you know he'll see some imagery and it'll be like hey this is God's people coming up out of Egypt and he's able to then take it and just make the t- typological move to Christ in the church. And it's just, it's great. It's, it's, it's a great model, uh, I think for us. And, and that's why I've been enjoying it so much. Well, I should mention that Garrett is Walden has now joined the crew for those. If I listen to the podcast version, you have no idea that he is now here, but he is. So he's our senior editor. He also is sporting a very nice goatee. So this is nice to see. He's, he's aged, aged 20 years since, we graduated. 
So, Garrett, to get you up to speed, we've just been talking about, uh, for the last, I don't know, a couple minutes, John Gill and the fact that I can't believe he actually read Song of Solomon. Uh, just looking at his face, he doesn't look like someone who would know anything about that. So, um, jokes all around. I'm sorry. I I try to be the comedic relief in these scenarios. So, Hunter, I cut you off. Continue on with what you were saying. Well, I came in on John Gill is is awesome. So, I, I support that. He's not crazy. Uh, <laughs> I agree with Morgan. Whatever he said, <laughs> agree. Yeah, I mean, let, uh, the one one of the passages I'm looking at with John Gill is talking. Uh, he's talking about it's Song of Solomon two, uh, verses three, and it's, he's comparing Christ to the uh, the apple tree uh, who provides shade for his people and brings forth his fruit. Um, you know, the apples in season, and he's making connections there between uh, the shade of the apple tree and the shade of a rock in Isaiah 32, the shade that the Messiah would provide from Hosea 14. He's connecting um, the apples to the word himself or the word written word uh, by going to Proverbs, saying the word uh, fitly spoken brings nourishment and healing and that kind of idea. So he's trying to read intertextually. And like Morgan was saying, reading not only just intertextually within the scriptures, but also seeing different things that are going around in that in, in the, that context, the ancient Near context, so to speak, uh, the, the Hebrew interpretation of that. He's, you know, he's highlighting. Uh, the significance of the apple tree in a kind of romantic type way as well. So he's really employing a lot of different um, methods, so to speak, to kind of bring light to this. And it's really, he's trying to bring forth Christ in a way that's really, like like we've been saying, nourishing to uh, the soul. And um, and that's, you know, this is, I'm kind of just channeling some of the stuff that I've learned from uh, Dr. Presley is, you know, when we're getting the hermeneutic stuff, you know, Every every word basically is a sign that has some kind of reference, and you have to make those kind of decisions uh, whether it's a reference, whether the, it's the thing is just the thing itself, or it's referring to something in the ancient Near East, or it has some kind of reference canonically uh, across the scriptures. Um, but you know what I love about the early church's way of reading the Father is it kind of presupposes a few couple a couple big things, which one is that the scriptures are the word of God; they have one divine author, and that God is sovereign. In history, because they're seeing the, the, these events, they don't—they're not the inerrancy debates are foreign to them. They just accept it as history, um, and they see that God is in control of those things. That there's patterns and different things that are foreshadowing uh, Christ, His gospel, the Christian life, the return—you know, a lot of different things. I mean, I don't know if you guys agree. The inerrancy debates—they bore me to death. Like. I just, it, for me personally, I just don't like, I don't understand the excitement over it. Like the Bible is the word of God. Okay. Let's like, either you think it or you don't, I'm not going to fight you over it. This is just like, <laughs> what are we doing here? If we're really debating that, I, I don't know. What's, what's been interesting. What's been interesting to me is that um, a lot of the times, you know, you can, you just get a feel from how someone is, treating scripture like there there's some people who is like literally every everything is higher critical for them they filter everything through that and you just you can't have a conversation about scripture with them but then there are other people who would would nuance that they say no i don't believe in inerrancy or whatever but in actual discussion and the way that scripture works in their theologizing they treat it as as god's word and authoritative and, uh, you know, I'm not saying it's an unimportant debate because, uh, you know, I think it is. Um, and I think that there's room 
there's got to be room for, yeah, I just don't find that debate particularly compelling, but I'm glad there are other people doing it. Um, but, but often when the, the rubber hits the road, I, I found it wasn't as, uh, I, I find it's not as formative um, when it comes to doing theology and talking about theology as I was initially led to believe. And I'm not saying there's not theological consequences, um, but oftentimes I can be, you know, I have a good conversation with someone and find out later that, you know, they don't believe in Ansi quite as strongly as I do or whatever. Um, so I'm, I'm with you. I, I, the, the, the inerrancy debates, I think, yeah, <laughs> let's, let's do, let's, let's get on to the actual the, theologizing. Yeah. I, I'm more interested in like how you interpret, like your interpretive methods. So like when you're presented with a text, like, what do you do with that? How do you understand its implications, its meaning, um, those sort of questions, they they still interest me because I think there's still a live debate among Christians and how we should interpret various texts. And so that I, I, I'm game for that. Um, but the like the baseline, let's just revise the Bible as much as we can or not. Seems like really boring. like no offense to Peter Enns. I don't find his stuff persuasive at all. I think it's actually really boring um, and not. Like it just doesn't convince me in the slightest. So I'm sure if I had Peter Enns on the podcast, I would be nice to him and cordial and ask him questions. Uh, but I find his case entirely unconvincing. Yeah. Well, you guys know I, I kind of live in 18th century Baptist world, and you know you don't really find the term inerrancy at all in that in that world. But they talk a lot about the inspiration of Scripture, and they talk a lot about the perfection of Scripture. And I prefer those terms. I mean, if it's inspired, then that means it comes from the Holy Spirit, um, and it's given to us as a gift from God. And if you read some of the some of these 18th century Baptists, they they talk about Scripture with in some ways that really sometimes make me uncomfortable because they like ascribe divine attributes at times to, to Scripture, and so uh, that yeah just speaking of its perfection and, and all that sort of thing. So if it, if it comes from God and it's given to us by God, then it, it bears some marks of God's character in it. And so that's kind of the way I prefer to talk about it. I mean, I'm, I'm not shy about inerrancy. I, I affirm the doctrine of inerrancy, of course, but I think there are other ways to talk about it that I, I, I'm with you, Jordan. I think I, inerrancy was, and that whole debate was kind of like grilled, drilled into my head for a while. And I feel like I kind of just got burned out on it. And it's not that I now don't care about it or now I don't believe it. It's just that I, there's just more to the doctrine of Scripture than that particular debate in kind of the the moder- like the fundamentalist liberal liberalism controversy. And so as I've read uh, some of these 18th century Baptists and their doctrine of Scripture, they're kind of having a bit of a different conversation. And I kind of like the conversation they're having. <laughs> and, uh, I, I kind of prefer to sit in on that one. And uh, I know we don't always get to pick the conversations that we get dragged into, but um, so I, I love to just talk about, you know, this, this comes as a gift from God to us from the Holy Spirit, and it is perfect because God gave it to us. And um, that, that's just a really beautiful thing. So uh, just one of those examples of, um, you know, ascribing almost divine attributes to, to Scripture. Ryland will talk about, you know, um, p- part of the final judgment in in hell for eternity is that 
people won't have Bibles. And uh, it's just like, wow, okay, that's like part of the wrath of God is that they will not have uh, the revelation of God. Um, and so it, it really is, I guess, in his view, like the Bible in our hands is as close to the presence of Jesus as, as we will get on this side of glory. And I really think that's pretty beautiful. And it does, it does change our posture towards Scripture. Like This really is what God has given us as a gift. To piggyback on what you said, Garrett, I wonder, at least for me, part of the reason I don't find the conversations all that fun or interesting is because they end up focusing on like really tertiary issues to me. Like you have to have a literal interpretation of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You have to have a literal interpretation of Ezekiel, whatever it is. And like, if you don't do that, then you don't believe in inerrancy. And I'm just like, okay, guys, like, come on. Like, you may not like the way Tim Keller approaches Genesis 1 and through 11 or whoever it is. Pick your pick your bad guy, William Lane Craig, whoever it is. Um, I, like, they're trying to take Scripture seriously. Whether you agree with their interpretation or not, they still find it authoritative in all aspects. Um, so I, I just... I don't find that conversation helpful because it usually ends up just becoming like, I just need to find a reason to like paint everybody as a heretic and me as the courageous warrior. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the, that gets back to um, what Morgan was talking about a little bit earlier was, you know, this, we, we need to have everything nailed down. And sometimes the inerrancy debate, it's like you, you have to have answers for every possible objection and if you don't, well, then you're compromising. You're this, you're that, and it, it takes it takes some of the um, the mystery out of it. And and ultimately, some I almost I almost sometimes feel like the inerrancy debates. You're you're required to have like these uh, to have thought through every possible objection and every possible you know uh, reason that you know Peter Enns brings up or whatever uh, before you can say you you're inerrantist or you uh rationally believe in inerrancy and i think that part of that obscures that you know it is a article of faith um you know why we do this part of it's because of the tradition handed down not in the roman catholic sense but you know part of the reason i believe it is because the church believes it um and no i haven't thought through all the possible objections and no i don't think i can answer all of the outstanding questions that are out there but nonetheless you know uh, I believe it's the word of God. And then I proceed forward with that as an article of faith. Now, I think, I think there's a danger in saying, oh, this debate doesn't matter because I know for a lot of people, it's a, it is a um, matter of, um, of, you know, great concern for them. You know, people have questions all the time and you can't necessarily, well, that's just, you know, just belief. I, I do think that there's value in those apologetic endeavors and for strengthening the faith of believers but at the end of the day we do also need to recognize that no it is it is a matter of faith it's a theological um concept first and then proceed from that basis i was going to say earlier i'm I'm convinced that garrett hopped on the hanover house and was looking for the fastest possible way to talk about ryland and he succeeded i think it was about uh two minutes and 45 seconds that it took him to uh make a beeline to ryland on that one well, now that you mention it, um, great segue. Let's just read this little section from Ryland on uh, just um, commending the beauty of Scripture and the importance of the original languages. So he's writing this to um, 
to prospective ministers. Uh, uh, so ministers in training, he says, reverend and excellent men, you know, the inexpressible sweetness of studying the scriptures in their sacred originals and can discern the superior beauties of the word of God. When tis expressed in the language of God, you scorn to see only with other men's eyes and disdain the meanness of depending on the fidelity of translators for the truths and doctrines you teach. You would be ashamed to be a spiritual healer and not able to read the prescriptions of the great physician. You would blush to profess yourselves counselors of the soul, and at the same time obliged to a fellow creature for the explanation of the meaning of his words, who is styled wonderful counselor. You could not endure the thought of being ambassadors from heaven, yet unable to read a word of your instructions written for your use by the secretary of your great master. How can you endure to have the lower classes of men say, there goes a parson that steals other men's sermons. There is a wretch that never studies the Bible. There is a preacher that lies on a level with a boy that waits at his table or wipes his horse's heels. There is an ambassador that cannot read a word of the commission and instructions of his prince. There is a spiritual doctor that cannot read a line of his supreme physician's prescriptions. There is a teacher of the divine laws that knows nothing but what other people tell him of the original statutes of heaven. Can you bear all this and a thousand times more with an unfeeling heart and an unblushing face? Don't you in your conscience judge that such laziness and insufficiency would never be born in any other uh, of the professions of life? And so he's he's just, <laughs> just zealous for the imperative of, theologians and ministers in particular of reading God's word closely and uh, seeing it as uh, kind of the mediation of the divine, uh, the divinely appointed telos for humanity. And so um, we who have the privilege to be pastors and preachers have a, a stewardship entrusted to us. And so he's, he's kind of appealing here for the importance of studying Greek and Hebrew. And so it, it, re- it reveals their, their doctrine of scripture um, and it reveals their kind of high, high calling of the ministerial office. I think, too, uh, one of the things that tends to happen on the other side of this conversation, like on the apologetics or evangelism side, um, is, you know, people maybe will come up with objections about the Bible and that sort of thing. But I don't know if you guys have found this, but um, one of the things that I love that the confession talks about is how. Uh, the Bible is a witness to itself that it is the Word of God with its beauty, with its symmetry, uh, with with its parts that um, you know work so well together, that sort of thing. And uh, I just totally uh, botched the confession, by the way. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I've found that sometimes, like I, I, you know, if I let people sort of talk through that, but then I actually will get them in the Word, like get them reading it, um, that the Bible itself will argue argue for itself just from its own beauty and from its own like authority. And so I don't know, sometimes I think we can almost get caught up in trying to argue for the Bible. And um, yeah, there might be, especially on an evangelism apologetic side, just kind of trying harder to actually get people in it. You know, so many times I'm like, Hey, have you, have you actually ever read the Bible? And then to, to actually get people in it, they, they actually start to feel the, the weightiness the beauty and and it's it's convincing. The fact that Garrett had a quotation ready that like fit the occasion is shocking, but also 
not shocking. He was just pretending to read it. We all know he has it memorized. He's been crying over it, you know, each each evening. He just gets <laughs> teared up and emotional. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. I, I I had an Augusta one pulled up, but it was much shorter. So. Uh, yeah, Hunter, if you give me a brief quote and it goes on for three minutes, that is not brief. I'm saying this. It was so worth it, though. Wasn't it, guys? Uh, That's- <laughs> well, it was, it was at least worth it to roast you about it. But Morgan, I think you're right. I mean, I'm just thinking back to some conversations I've had in college. Like, I had one time I was talking to a guy, and I had him convinced that the, re- the resurrection happened, but he didn't want to believe because. He didn't know how salt water and fresh water could be separated in the flood. I'm like, man, if that's your hangup, like, <laughs> there's some, something in your life that you're just not wanting to repent <laughs> of. <laughs> and you're not wanting to believe. And, like, the spirit's not at work. And then, and then one time I was talking with another guy at the beach, and we'd been talking about this. And I, said, I just looked at him and I said, hey, man, if I like, convinced you that I was right, like, without, you know, within a reasonable shadow of a doubt, you know, like, just, I was right. Would you, would you believe and change and follow Christ? He goes, no. I said, and why are we talking? <laughs> you know, and it's just like, it's this idea of that, you know, like we can't rationally argue people into the kingdom. I think there's, I think there is room for the inerrancy uh, discussion. Uh, but really, like I think Jacob says, we just approach the scriptures as the word of God. And we, we approach them in a way that, uh, as Garrett was getting at, is kind of oriented towards our kind of intended end uh, as human beings, uh, of being in the presence of God or seeing beholding and contemplating God's face. Um, and the Augustine quote I was referencing a second ago is, um, he says in one of his sermons, he says, for now, treat the scriptures as the face of God uh, and melt mm-hmm. in his presence. And it's this idea of, you know, Augustine, for Augustine, the entire telos of humanity is to behold the face of God uh, in the beatific vision. And he's saying, for now, treat the scriptures as mm-hmm. the face of God and just melt in his presence. And I just think that's such a great posture towards the text. It's really radically, uh, not radically, I guess, but it's really, have really helped me to focus in on what it is that I'm doing when I'm approaching the text to preach or to read is this is, you know, my step in faith of beholding the face of God. And I'm here to commune with him. Um, and I, I think the Song of Solomon passage we mentioned earlier is right towards that too. So that's great. It's, it's really a beautiful way of thinking. Man, that is beautiful. Hey, we started this whole conversation talking about books we're reading and stuff. And um, in light of one of the discussions we just had, I might kind of change the subject a little bit based on reading stuff. So my one of my goals actually this year is to try to get through all of the um, post-Reformation reform dogmatics. Yeah. And um, I'm kind of working my way through the first volume right now. And um, first of all, I'm just be curious um, – which of you guys have, have read it or haven't read it. And if you have read it sort of what's, what's been sort of uh, something you took from it, but I guess in light of the conversation we were just having, um, you know, I don't think any of us are here saying that um, that rational thought or intellectualism or critical thinking is wrong or bad in any sense at all. I don't think that's what we're saying. So I, I don't know. I'm just curious, like, how do you find that sweet spot where on the one hand um, you're, you're understanding like why it is that we do what we do, why it is that we read the scriptures, why it is that we do theology. um, And you're keeping um, like, you're talking about like the face of God and actually knowing him, 
But then at the, on the other hand, you're still willing to be critical and be thoughtful. And uh, we might even say scholastic uh, if you want to. Um, but I, I'm just curious, kind of how do you, how have y'all found like either personally or even on a, on a, um, on a higher level, like how do we maintain sort of that balance between the, those two things? And maybe it's not a balance, but I think y'all might get what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Well, I, I will confess that while they are sitting on my shelf, I have not read through um, Muller. Um, I, I usually pull it up to as, as a reference. Um, yeah. yeah, we can tell, Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, the, the amount of the amount of books out there that I realize I, I haven't read is is embarrassing. Even just, you know, I'm, I'm working through the atonement and I'm making a list of like just uh, important, important works in the field. I'm like, wow, I haven't read that one. Okay. I, I've read summaries of that one. I've read parts of that one. I went back and was, I've been reading uh, Anselm. Like, man, I don't really remember a whole lot of, of this either. So uh, I have to go back and reread books I've already read. Um, but but then to your the second the second point of your um, question like you know why do we do this like I guess the question like why do you even bother right um, just go to church sing your songs and live your life and I think that I think for for me what I've kind of you know what what is what is what a, what's the tell us of man in general what's my point here what's the um, tell us of the church and all that. I think the shorthand way I've come to is, you know, it's to worship God. And then, okay, then then why would we engage in theology? So we can worship him rightly um, and uh, in in spirit and in truth. Um, and so I see, you know, I, I see that, um, I, I think that, that there's, there's a difference between a, um, a theologian working for the church and one who's just merely intellectually curious, I would hope we would all want to be the former rather than the latter. And that what what is what I am doing um, helping the church worship better um, in 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 better understanding of who God is and what He's done and what He intends for the world. Um, so the in, in yeah in short for me that's that's it. How how do I worship God better? Um, and, and I also, I also like, I'm not the only person doing this, you know, it's okay for me to advance the knowledge of God, maybe in a small way or in a way that just reminds a few people of what they already know about God. Um, and then I'm being a faithful servant. Yeah. I mean, I think it's second Peter one. I mean, Peter's just saying, I feel like I'm constantly needing to stir you up by way of reminder to do things that we've already know, you know, we already know. And, and just the idea of, I mean, I think that's part of the, the this whole project that we're a part of is this idea of this kind of virtuous curiosity that seeks to know more about who God is because knowing God isn't in in, in and of itself uh, because it leads to worship. I mean, I guess that's what I'm saying it's a meme right there, but but it it's an end in that knowing God is worshiping God and learn, loving God with our mind and that kind of idea. It's um I don't know what I'm getting at there. Jordan might be able to piggyback on a Garrett or Morgan anyway. So I have read probably about 60% of Moeller, um, but it has been on a total ad hoc 
need, as needed basis. So I ha- did not commit to reading straight through it like you have, Morgan. Uh, it's been very much just like, I'm studying this topic. Let me read the 60 pages on this section. Uh, and I find it very, very helpful uh, just because of the breadth of knowledge that he's bringing to the table. So you can really get a sense of the diversity and the unity uh, that's going on at play in the various areas. As far as the question of like the the intellectual life and the Christian faith, I mean, I don't know if we want to, th- are we thinking about this specifically as it relates to something like evangelism? So when I think about evangelism, you know, like Hunter's giving the example of uh, his friend convinced of the resurrection, but doesn't want to be believe because of how in the world does the flood work? And clearly no amount of intellectual robustness is going to change his mind and like lead him into belief. Uh, So in that sense, it's kind of like, well, what's the purpose there? Well, I've always thought about like robust intellectual arguments as primarily in service of the building up of the faith of the church and not necessarily for um, just purely evangelistic reasons. Um, I think we probably all agree here. Regeneration is a work of the spirit of God, something that we, none of us can do on our own or create. And yet, even when I say all those things, I, I do, I, I, reading the Puritans and the way they approached like the sort of like preparation for conversion, it has made me think a little bit more deeply than just like, well, it doesn't really matter. I don't have to tell like the unbeliever anything. I just have to wait on the spirit to to do his thing. And then I can share all this stuff. There is a sense in which God ordains means and he uses means. And therefore that's part of what it is, is yes, I should still create the most robust arguments that I can, but all with the knowledge that this is a dead person that I'm speaking to. And I can't raise the dead myself. Uh, only someone else can. So that's a long-winded way of saying, I think you still just keep doing what you're doing because that's part of what the Lord has called us to, all the while knowing that in evangelism specifically, I don't fundamentally hold the key that unlocks it. So I can put grease around it all I want, uh, but that's not going to fundamentally give me a key to turn uh, turn it and lo- unlock it. Yet, that grease can be very, you know, like part of the means of like being able to get the key in there and pull it out. I don't know if that makes sense. That's just, that's what's going on in my head as I think about it. Yeah. I think that's a a great, great way to think about it. Just, it reminds me of a conversation I had with a church member one time. Oh, a couple of years ago, there was a lot of things going on in the culture. And, um, I kind of had a couple of requests to, preach or teach on some kind of controversial cultural issues going on. And I was pretty resistant to doing that just because it felt kind of like fad ish or like just jumping on a trend or a hashtag or whatever. And so I remember kind of giving this church member some pushback and just like, you know, you know, look at our congregation. I don't think anybody in our church is tempted to actually believe that. And this church member very wisely and gently corrected me and was just kind of like, yeah, but he's like, I I don't, I really don't think anyone in our church is tempted to go that way, but they have friends and family and coworkers and roommates and um, people that they know and rub shoulders with 
that are. And our public teaching on some of these things can serve as an example to them how to engage in these kinds of conversations. And it can be almost like a, a tutorial for how to think and engage in these kinds of conversations. And so uh, I guess in that, in that sense, you know, being on kind of the, I don't like the word cutting edge, but just like keeping our ears attuned to some more ideological things that, that are going on and whether it's in the Academy or in the culture, whatever it might be, intellectual engagement on the part of the theologian and the Christian minister um, does have an apologetic value in evangelism and seeking to persuade the lost, but it also serves as an example of how a mature Christian should engage and consider these things. And so I, I really like that point, Jordan, about it, it really does edify the church to um, really exercise the life of the mind as, as a, as part of our ministerial calling to be an example to the flock. Yeah. I mean, I, like most of the like arguments for the reliability of scripture and everything for me, those are to shore up the faith of those who are already Christians and in, in your local churches who are struggling with like, well, you know, my non-Christian friend or my professor or whoever it is has said this about the, provided this new evidence. And now like, I feel like I doubt the veracity of scripture or whatever it is. And part of the point for me of like wanting to do those sort of apologetic things is not to convince an unbeliever, but to give strength and encouragement to the actual believer to say, no, you can't trust this. No, it is reliable or whatever, you know, all the the hot button issues that come up, you know, there there's actual scientific evidence or whatever you need to just encourage you in those things. So that's, well, at least how I think about it for the most part. So, something Garrett just um, was talking about, though, kind of triggered another thought in me, though. I think that what is also vital in there was the Christian aspect, not in terms of the content of your ideology, but the but your character, uh, in terms of exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit. I can't think of many people who I would say come to a position purely on the basis of intellectual sitting down in a room in an oven and just thinking about something you know um we're all we're all interconnected sometimes a belief seems compelling because of our our society and connection and all this and i mean you you think about even you know in our current uh in our current uh cultural um milieu you can you can find people from all kinds of different backgrounds who will believe to say, just take sexual ethics, for instance, uh, will believe the same things, but present that in completely different ways. Um, you, you know, you can think of, of very hateful, unchristian people who don't claim to be Christians who might hold to what we would call, you know, um, traditional uh, ethics. Um, but we wouldn't want we wouldn't want to say that they're Christian um, merely because they align with uh, the content of our because part of being a Christian is not only certain beliefs. It is also that you are a person who has been transformed by the Holy Spirit and you are exhibiting God's love. So it's not just the content, but also your motivations and your intentions. 
that are also behind that. And I think that sometimes we don't pay enough attention to our own development as um, Christians in terms of uh, the virtues, exercising those virtues. Um, it can, it can, it can. So part of the argument, if we're looking at an apologetics, part of the argument really is our demeanor. Um, and part of the argument is our lives. Um, you know, and I, I, trust me, I grew up in fundamentalism. I know all the dangers associated with, you know, trying to win people to Christ without saying a word. I like, I get all that. Um, but I do think that there's something to be said for that as well. Yeah, there's a great, great work on just kind of detailing the growth of the other church. Uh, patient ferment by Alan Carter. I've mentioned it a few times in the Slack, and it's it's really just emphasizing this idea of this theme he traces out is the push of pagan culture and the pull of Christian transformation or Christian virtue. And it's this idea of, of that we know the pagan culture is unsatisfying, like the Roman culture was unsatisfying intellectually, morally, and we know and we know that to be true that there's a lot of emptiness and brokenness. And he was making the case that. The pull of the community of, of the virtuous living in the, in the, in the kind of the, you know, the, the new virtuous community that had, the spirit had created, uh, through the proclamation of the gospel had, had a really pulling effect of drawing people to Christ and, and through the catechesis, through the, the development of young believers, uh, parents and the children and uh, the church with, uh, there's, and the, uh, the catechumen, like really, um, transformed uh, the Roman Empire, you know, basically, so to speak, and that if it, it, it just, it changed the way I kind of looked at some things. It just emphasized what you said, the, the importance of virtue, the importance of the community, uh, and just thinking that, like, as a service to our young people, if we're, if we're unfairly representing people, if we're unfairly representing opposing views, when they go out and hear those opposing views, and they hear them actually fairly represented and presented, they're going to believe, they're going to think, oh, well, the, this guy was lying you know, I think what we're talking about is a service to the young people. Uh, and because we hear, I see it all throughout our, you know, just in, in people that I minister with. And it's the young people that are getting attacked with trash arguments that seem smart, but they're not smart. And we get to to kind of be a pillar and buttress of truth and show those, take captive those thoughts and, and show them where the, where the truth is and where the error is and keep those errors. But we just get to do it in a way that's charitable, that's virtuous, that's Fairly representing the, the cause it's easy to take down a straw man, uh, but it's, it's hard to, it's, it's, it doesn't do any value to those who are actually struggling, uh, in doubt, uh, or whatever. Hunter's not even in his thirties and he's already calling people young people. <laughs> <laughs> the youth, the youth, the youth. Um, it seems like two things. Um, both uh, spiritual formation and doing theology and spiritual formation and even scripture interpretation seem to be held together more closely in the early church. Um, it seems like we've kind of pushed those things apart. And I wonder, like, in a practical sense, if you guys have any thoughts on, like, what it might look like for us to recapture that. Cause I mean, I do think that's a, a big part. I mean, when Jordan and Brandon, you know, launched this London Lyceum thing, I think that's like part of what you guys had in mind. It's like recapturing uh, the, the weddedness 
of both spiritual formation and doing theology as like a as a total package and not as these you know separate things but um i wonder if you guys have any comments on on practical ways i mean even you just uh, hunter mentioning like catechizing and some things like this like th- those kinds of things just seem to press spiritual formation and theology like back together again but i don't know if there's any other ideas you guys have on on what that what that could look like well th- this is one of the things that draws me to confessionalism because when i look at what the confession is for it's not just this uh cut and dried here's here's the truth um here's a bare bare statement of fact it's a it's a document and a declaration for the church um and for particular churches um and 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 so there's a sense in which it's it's a theology for life together um and and there's a recognition there that that our reading of scripture our interpreting of scripture is not just a solo endeavor and then what what comes along with that is that there is this idea of living together, worshiping together, and then passing along the truth to subsequent generations. And so realizing that, hey, not only do you not interpret scripture in a vacuum locally, like you're not just reading it for yourself, it's for participation in the community, but also also the community that stretches back to the time of Christ, to to the, the whole tradition. Um, and having that sang- that sense of of location, um, it, for me, it does two things. One, it it gives me comfort that like I don't have to figure everything out. Like I don't have to I don't have to figure sit down with the Bible and be like, okay, what does this mean? Uh, <laughs> because I just read it cover to cover, and now I have to write a book report. Um, that's that's not on me. But then it also gives me kind of an incentive to, hey, I have a responsibility as I've been poured into, as I am living uh, in this way, that that I want to be pouring into other people as I've been poured into. Um, and so advancing the interpretation and understanding of Scripture as best as I can. I have nothing to add compared to what you guys have already said. That was good. So, well done. I had think oh. I had something, but I've forgotten it. So usually, you, you, if I try to pay attention to what people are saying, and so that gets <laughs> me in trouble because then I forget what it is. Like you say something at like minute two, I'm like, oh, that's a great thing I want to build on, and then I just lose it. So I apologize. Not that anybody really cares what I say, but anyway, go on. Um. Well, I, I, again, going back to books, I mean, I don't know if anybody else wants to um, share any books, but I'm reading an interesting part of, so part of what got me actually on Song of Solomon and then led me to spend some time with Gil was, um, there's a book, I think it's, I think the guy's last name's Webb, uh, who wrote a book in that New Studies of Biblical Theology series, and it's called, uh, I think the Five Festal Garments is what it's called. Um, I don't know if you guys have read that or, or looked at that, but, um, you know, it's really interesting. I read some of it for. Um, did you look at Esther? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. I talked through Esther at my church a few weeks uh, in the spring of last year, and I used it to kind of help think through some things. That's there. cool. Well, I what what I really liked about the book is really interesting. 
from a um, he, he's kind of wedding together, you know, the typical sort of biblical theology thing that that series is up to. But then he he is wedding it to actually kind of a liturgical um, conversation where he's showing like, hey, these different books of the Bible were read at different points in Israel's liturgical worship throughout the year and kind of saying, like, why were they read? Like, why did they choose the Song of Solomon to be read at the Passover? Like, what? why did those things go together? Um, and then he goes through um, Song of Solomon, Ruth, uh, Lamentation, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. I'm only, I'm in Lamentation right now, so y'all pray for me. That's what I'm, uh, I'm spending some time in Lamentation. Um, the first two words in my ESV are, how lonely. Oh, man, this is going to be month. But, um, but no, I mean, it's been good. I mean, I just think of it in in, in the context of what we're just talking about right now too, you know, just, um, yeah, I don't know what y'all's thoughts are on liturgy. Uh, but, but I think there are these formative experiences. I'll just say it like this. I think there's, there's like, there's a, there's a tradition that's like super high on spiritual formation through the disciplines but could care less about theology. And then I think there's, there's an other like perspective where people can, um, you know, just want to know all the facts and have all the answers, but could care less about actually becoming more and more like Jesus. And, um, so I'm, I'm just always interested in things that are trying to push that back together. And, um, uh, and so anyway, I'm, I'm enjoying this book. I think it's been good. And else it, it, it pushed me to, to read through Song of Solomon with like a, just a different lens, not only typological, but, um, but even just thinking through what does this look like, uh, to play out a, a life of, um, genuine love between Christ and his church. And, uh, and, and what would that look like for the church to celebrate that on an ongoing basis, uh, as a part of its formative experience? Um, so anyway, that's pretty much what I've been reading lately. Uh, and, um, yeah, it's been good stuff. So I'll mention some that I'm reading. I, I have a bad habit of constantly switching between books that I'm reading. Um, the one that I just started and it's shame on me, retrieving Nicaea, the development and meaning of Trinitarian doctrine by, I don't know how to say his name, Khaled Anatolis or whatever. Very, very good so far. Um, also reading this, ter- this man, this has the worst cover of all time. It's like hot pink. Uh, the Acts of the Council of Chalcedon, or if I was talking to somebody like Richard Cross, it'd be Chalcedon or something like that. Sounds more epic when you do it that way. Uh, this has been really, really interesting. So it was a significantly long introduction, just sort of like given the historical background and overview of what's going on for like 100 pages. And then it actually just gets into the documents um, and the sessions and the, the notes that they were taking. So that's pretty interesting. And then two volumes I just got that I'm excited to read. Um, even though I probably need to just finish what I've got, is Michael Allen's Knowledge of God book, which just has several essays, which looks awesome. And then I got this book, Divine Speech in Human Words. And because it's a hardcover, I was able to take mm-hmm. off that terrible iconography that you know those Roman Catholics put on there <laughs> and cast it to the flames. But I am excited to read the content <laughs> of the book. Is there a reason, Jordan, you're um, touching up on Nicaea and Chalcedon, or is that just st- the kind of thing that lights your fire? 
Well, that's part of my dissertation. So okay. the dissertation is on like conciliar Christology and sort of philosophy of mind, which for most theologians just goes by anthropology. And so the idea is just like looking at different aspects of the conciliar creeds and how that ultimately limits or does not limit particular views on mind-body relationship. So a big part of me is making sure that I understand all of the context that's going on for those creeds. What do the authors have in their minds? What are they debating over and arguing about? Because if there is a very consistent, like, this is, we all agree on this, then even if it's not there in the creeds, I feel very strongly that you should allow that some sort of interpretive authority, even if it's not in the creed, the, the definition itself. You should think, well, that's, everybody agrees this logically leads you to X. Therefore, you probably have to affirm this in some way or have a very, very good justification for denying it or revising it in a particular way. So that's why I'm interested in those things. So if it says pastor and the people that were there when they wrote the word pastor meant certain thing by pastor, then it should mean what it says when it says pastor. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. Well, (laughs) man, that whole SBC thing, like it drives me nuts. Um, It just seems like for me anyway, I know I've said this in public several times and it's, it seems like you've got a couple of options. You can either say, we're going to go ahead and use the confession as a standard for our convention. What, and that's the boundary marker. You can say, I don't want the confession to be the boundary marker because it's too strict in whatever way. That's fine. We're going to revise it to be more big tent in the particular areas we want to do. I'm fine with that. If you want to go that approach, it's the third approach that I absolutely abhor. And it's the one that we always get stuck with, which is I'm going to let a secret group that no one knows who they are make secret judgments on what counts and what doesn't count and how we can disfellowship and fellowship churches. I hate that. Pick and choose. Yeah. Like it's just flavor of the month. Whoever's in power at the time gets to make the decisions. Like, I want transparency and consistency. And the only way for me to do that is to pick a confession and stick to it. And if you already have the Baptist faith and message, why wouldn't you use it? And if you don't want to use it because it's too narrow in particular areas, fine, fix it. Like it just doesn't seem hard. Yeah, but you're talking about 16,000 churches and that gets hard. Yeah. I mean, yeah. If you signed up to be in the SBC, I I think one of the things too. Go ahead. Ah, we can. We don't talk about SBC. I could go home, but um, I'd be more interested to know what what Jordan thinks about when the creeds say rational soul and body. What that means? Um, you're going to get me in trouble. I I don't know. Um, I go back and forth on that. I didn't catch what I didn't catch what Hunter said. When it says the creeds say that Christ has. It assumed rational soul and body. What does Jordan? What was the consensus of what that meant with Jordan? That's kind of a, a big a big part of Hunter is the reason I'm kind of saving this conversation. Bit. Yeah. So the re- the reason Hunter is asking that question is because if if a rational soul and body is a necessary part of you know the creedal tradition, then you have eliminated the ability for something like any any form of physicalism to be consistent with the ecumenical creed. So that just tells you right off the bat, if you want to think hard about anthropology, you can't be a physicalist. doesn't matter how you set it up. If you don't have 
a substantial rational soul, then, then you're out of luck. Um, first off, I define physicalism. What's that? Yeah. What, is, what, is, what is physicalism? Yeah. Mean? So physicalism, just the basic thesis that I am made up of material stuff and that's it. But you can still, you can be a materialist and be like a non-reductive materialist or physicalist. Materialist, physicalist, same thing. Uh, it's just interchangeable depending on who you're talking to. So you can be a like non-reductive one, which would say you have these non immaterial mental properties of some sort. You could call them a soul if you want. It does the same thing as a soul. It's just not like an actual substantial separate entity from, from your material body. You are just identical to this, even if you have immaterial stuff. And so for me, the question ends up being like, can you do something like that and in good faith affirm what the creed says? And I think if you don't want to think about what the authors are doing themselves, I think on its face, yes, I think you can affirm uh, the creeds just as a creedal statement if you go a route of like, yes, just call it a soul. I don't think of it as a soul in the sense that you do where it's like this ghostly entity or whatever you think of a soul as. I think you can do it that way. And I still think, um, I, I mean, I'm still, I go back and forth on, depending on the day. But even when you read the the material uh, of those who are influential in these definitions uh, and you read the debates that are going on, I'm not totally convinced that there is a consistent anthropology that you see through all the fathers to where you could say, yes, you got when it says rational soul and body, you got to be a substance dualist of this type or you got to be this of 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 this stripe. I, I just don't know if it's as clear cut as we would want it to be. Uh, I may be convinced otherwise as I continue to read, but for now I still think the door is open to interpret that uh, variously. You have to have some sort of immaterial mental life to affirm the creed. I'm just not convinced that you have to have a particular version of anthropology. So it does outlaw all forms of reductive materialism which basically every non-Christian scientist thinks for the most part now, and a good amount of biblical scholars in the guild probably would go that route too, some form of material, materialistic route. But even like Peter Van Inwagen, I know I'm getting like in the weeds here, but you asked the question, so here I am. <laughs> Peter Van Inwagen, he's a big materialist. I think his version of materialism can be consistent with that, with that creedal formula. Um, because of the way he's explaining and understanding how the human person works together, the organism and the, the mental life that goes on here. So, who, Elijah, you're saying so, a Christian Platonist one may one may say, "Okay, yeah, you're you're just a turd." Oh man, you, you're communist! <laughs> I'm gonna kick you from the chat. Anyway, that that's that's my long my long winded answer. So I apologize. Jordan, I, I think that you know we don't have to get into the weeds on, on the actual question, but I think it it brings up a um, a method, methodological question with respect to confessionalism. Um, like when we're thinking about creeds, when we're thinking about, you know, the ecumenical creeds, and, you know, we all want to you know, affirm Nicaea, those kind of things. Um, Chalcedon, there's other things that are with those creeds. Uh, what are some of those things? And like, what, like what, what must we, I know this is some of the stuff that um, uh, Ortland's been doing, you know, talking about diving into some of this stuff, like, when we say we affirm Nicaea, what does that mean? Do we affirm 
everything that's happening at that council, or are we affirming just the kind of the Nicene Creed, that kind of stuff, or Chalcedon, or whatever? So I think that's a very good and difficult question, and I continue to devote a significant amount of intellectual resources personally to thinking about it. And my gut intuition before I started thinking deeply about it was to say, you should agree with everything the authors behind the confession or the creed said. But as I started to really engage that question, I had two worries that have popped up and and made me think harder about it. One worry is that um, I definitely don't want to affirm everything that they said or thought. Uh, I mean, you if you go to the ecumenical creeds, like they're affirming lots of crazy things that have nothing to do with the creed itself that may have contributed to constructing the creed in the way it was. But I don't want to affirm that. I don't want to affirm geocentrism or whatever it may be that they had in mind. So I think you, you've got to be careful about what it is that you're requiring you to believe behind it. But the other thing is they're creedal formulas or confessional formulas for a purpose, because they said, this is our limit of what you must believe to be a part of this particular group. So I get uncomfortable when we start requiring things beyond the creed or beyond the confession where you have to do more. And then I'm like, that seems to almost defeat the whole purpose of the confession itself when you're saying you have to go out here and read all these other things to then have a sufficiently robust confessionalism or creedalism or whatever it may be. Of course, that then you still have the question of, well, you can't just play with the confession as a wax nose and make it mean whatever you want. You can't just ignore whatever the author said in, in total. So in my mind, at, at least now, I've thought that maybe a way to approach this is to say, is there a strong consensus in a particular thing uh, behind that confession? And if there is, then you say, yeah, you like there's just not really leeway there on that one. Now, if there is some sort of confusion or some variation, diversity, then that gives you a little bit of room to say, well, like I've, I've got the flexibility to go and interpret this in various ways. At least that's what I've thought here. I know Elijah has. Oh, oh. Elijah, Joseph, you guys have questions that I'll get to if I can. I'm sorry. Do you, Jordan, do you, do you draw a significant um, distinction between creeds and confessions with uh, in terms of your, what you're talking there at the end about how, you know, having the liberty to interpret things that might be difficult. Yeah. So I do think there are differences. So like you think of like the creed, the Chalcedonian creed, the, the intended purpose of that is almost a little bit to be flexible, to allow um, competing parties to some degree to affirm the same thing. So there is a sense for some things it's intended to be a little bit vague. Whereas I think for something like the Westminster Confession or the Second London Confession, it's intended to be very specific. And then you can go read the appendix and find things where they explicitly tell you the areas of disagreement, the areas of of vagueness, the reasoning for not including uh, discussions on, you know, close or open communion because there's a live debate. So I do think there can be a difference in those. And there's also, of course, just the difference in uh, which one's more important than the other, uh, which one has more authority, theoretically speaking, than the other. I think, I think Elijah's question is pretty, 
pretty pertinent to this too. I mean, getting into, you know, what, what comes into it is like, can you get Nicene doctrine without Nicene hermeneutics? Um, I do think this is maybe a controversial s- statement of being favorable towards pre-modern hermeneutics um, of supporting that fits better with sola scriptura. If you want to affirm the Nicene creed, because uh, if you reject the way the fathers read the Bible, and this is my logic, and y'all tell me if I'm wrong. If you reject the way the early church reads the Bible, you think their hermeneutics is bad, but you accept their conclusions, which come from the hermeneutics. Why are you accepting their conclusions? Because you don't think their hermeneutics is good. You're just, it, but you know, you can't deny Nicaea in theory. Um, and so to me, I think that kind of idea, I mean, this gets in some of Lewis Ayer's arguments with the pro-Nicene stuff. And, um, but I do think that there is some aspect of like a methodology, so to speak, that is, is important to kind of hold to uh, for, for the Reformation doctrine of Sola Scriptura and the way that we want to hold it that isn't, you know, new to Scripture or something like that. So, Hunter, I think you're right to, to press on that question. My, I, I'm not convinced that you have to have pre-modern interpretation to get to the right conclusion. I think the conclusion can still be right even if the methodology was fundamentally flawed. I think pre-modern way is the way to go. However, I think of it, you know, in my own context at work, somebody could be developing some sort of report for a, a party or a different department, and they end up getting the right conclusion. But when I go and review it with them, I look at it and say, I have no idea what you were doing here. You totally botch this and yet you still got the right answer i'd say yeah let's remove that methodology replace it with something that's actually accurate you're going to make sure to have consistency in this and you're going to get the right answer so i do think there's a way you could say yes you can get to the right answer with the wrong methodology in the same way you're saying you want to have pre-modern because you want to get there um you wouldn't i don't think want to say that People can't be inconsistent and confirm the right conclusion. They reject yeah, totally. modern and get there. Totally. So, I, I think that there can be multiple routes to the same conclusion. Is ultimately yeah. where yeah. I'm going with this. Yeah, I guess the better way of saying it is is that the embracing pre-modern exegesis and Nicaea fits better with I think the Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura. Yeah. Then rejecting pre-modern exegesis, but still accepting Nicaea. Yeah, and I think it reminds me of Augustine's, his on Christian teaching. He gives that example of like, the end goal of interpretation is what? Love of God and love of neighbor. Whatever interpretation gets you those things is in some sense right. Now there is a path, and it's it's a straight path, and naturally if you have the like the spot on interpretation, it's a really easy journey to getting to loving God and loving neighbor. However, some people could end up wandering off the path and wander completely like through the weeds and thorns and stuff, but they ultimately end up at the path. He would say, yes, that is a true and good ultimate interpretation. You've taken a very obscure route to get there, uh, one that was difficult and arduous, and yet you've arrived here. He would still tell you both of those are right, but one of them is better. So I I, I think that's how I would think of like pre-modern interpretation versus other forms. Yeah. I wonder, too, if part of the value um, of something like the rule of faith, you know, plays into this as well. I think sometimes it's easy to look at any creeds and confessions and think that the only reason they came about was because of heresy, like heresy pops up and that they're just having to then respond to it. But I think that's not necessarily the full story. 
um, that there is this like traditional, the not the word traditional is not right. There is this truth that is the tradition handed down uh, once for all delivered to the saints that yeah. is being carried carried on through those first few centuries. Uh, and so I almost wonder if like exegesis obviously plays into it. I don't, I don't want to make that, I don't want to say it doesn't play into it at all, but because they're working with like a stronger, thicker sense of tradition, and then that's being shaped and formed in the life of the community and, um, and in spiritual formation and catechesis, you know, you just wonder if uh, the picture we have sometimes of how they came up with these creeds is not just like only responding to heresy or only responding to negative views, uh, but the, the, but they're almost just polishing off their already kind of held doctrine of who Christ is or or who God is. Um, so I wonder if that plays into it some as well. Yeah, I agree. I mean, most of the academy and patristic scholarship in like the the non evangelical world will, would hate everything that you just said, but. <laughs> I agree with what you just said. Hunter, you want to a- answer Joseph's question there? That, that one's... Yeah. Uh, Joseph, I, I would not uh, identify pre-modern exegesis with the fourfold uh, method. I think that's a, a helpful tool, but I think it's mu- I think that's it's much broader than that. Uh, and I think this is one of the things, too. Pre-modern exegesis isn't really a method. It, it, I mean, it is. You know, there is a methodology to it, but it's... It's a it's a posture I think that one takes to the text that re- that reveals itself in a lot of different methods. Uh, so it's not like, you know, I think there's a tendency, and I've been here before. Like this is me, I don't know, year and a half ago, is I went from you know uh, a pretty you know growing up just strict you know h- grammatical historical to really through the you know through the preaching of my own church and others seeing the the, the beautiful tapestry of that's. Of, of typology and uh, the spiritual interpretation, seeing how all this thing fits, th- fits together. Um, but I really was still shifting basically from an individualistic approach to the te- text with a method to another individualistic approach to the text with a method. And I think the pre-modern exegesis is, is a little bit different than that or a lot of bit different than that. Uh, so it's hard to give you uh, parameters. Um, I do think like uh, you know, my theory is, is what you see kind of in Turretin is is kind of the crystallization of the best of it, uh, of the extension of the literal sense. The literal sense is what the divine author intended, uh, and you have the human author and divine author kind of in, in play there, uh, and they don't contradict one another. Uh, and there's this kind of spiritual sense that kind of carries out through the text, uh, but that's not like you have to have a here's a fourfold method that you can you can take. I think that's a very helpful thing to do and use um, at times. Um, but like I said, when you think of reading the Trinity in, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, like that's not really, I don't really know how to fit that into the fourfold method. Um, but I do think it's really clear uh, that that is a Trinitarian reading, that that is a Trinitarian text, uh, not a, you know, ancient Near East ancient, angelic council view, which was a view that the church knew about in, in the earliest days and that they rejected. But And, and correct me if I'm wrong, fourfold method becomes like an official sort of thing more in the medieval era, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you could say that the early church is doing that. I just, when you say fourfold method, that seems like a, a term that would come on the scene more for the medieval yeah. period. As I think about pre-modern exegesis, I just think of theological interpretation of scripture, which in itself is a vague term, but there is just, exegesis is loaded with theology and we should yeah. be doing theology as we exegete the text and they're not afraid to do that. So that's just for me, that's kind of how I think about it. 
Second Corinthians three uh, and the idea of passing through the letter to the spiritual sense and kind of shining with the glory of, that Moses had when he beheld the face of God or not beheld the face of God, but beheld God's glory. Uh, it's kind of like a way that they speak of it. Uh, Basil does that in his own, the Holy spirit. Um, and he, he ties them together and he critiques those who, I mean, there are people who disregard the, the literal sense uh, for the spiritual sense. I think they're wrong to do that. Uh, there are some people who are more in the literal and they don't, they don't make spiritual connections and they get out of whack a little bit there on some, on some things. And I think they're wrong to do that. So it's not a monolith either. You know, there's, there's different views, you know, origins, not the same as Augustine. Augustine's not the same as Justin. Uh, Irenaeus and Justin are different too. I mean, there's, so it's not like a, a pre-modern here's, here's the way they did it. It's, you know, it's, it's more, it's more complicated than, than that as it always is. We probably need to talk about Baptist or something or Garrett's going to check out. <laughs> <laughs> I do think the, the confession question is important as we think about what it means to be Baptist. Like what, what, like did we have to believe everything that they did in the 17th century, 18th century to be Baptist identity? I mean, these are all questions I think are so important and I'm just continually wrestling, wrestling with. Um, We're so. not allowed to talk about Baptist identity without the, our Pope here. In Jake oh yeah. With Jack, without Jake. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to, get myself in trouble and have some sort of like papal censure on my, me if I start talking and he finds out. Yeah. Uh, what would a papal bull from Jake look like? <clears throat> Probably a bag of Taco Bell or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have you to say funny? a couple of Hail Tom Nettles and a couple of Hail <laughs> Michael Hakens, you know, or whatever it is. A- Andrew Fuller. Uh, Surprised we haven't had our own Fuller, Fuller Wright Gillite uh, controversy with Garrett and Jake. Jake, a resident Gillite, and and Jake, a resident Fuller, Fuller Wright. I will say, I, I'm I'm trying to dig into this whole Gillite Fuller Wright thing. Um, I, it's obviously a, it's in the history of those two parties being opposed to one another. But in some some of my research, I think. It's not as exaggerated. The closer you get to Gill and Fuller's actual life, um, those, those differences aren't as exaggerated as they later come to be. And so this, it's kind of like two streams that, that part ways. And the further away you get from where they parted, the further away they get from one another. And so, um, yeah, I'm still, I'm still kind of digging in on that. Um, so... Anyway, that's kind of neither here nor there. Um, but yeah, I, I do think the, the question about, you know, do we need to, to, to properly own a confession? Do we need to adopt, um, I guess, think the things behind the text as well as the text? I think that's a really important question. Um, and I don't have a totally worked through response to that. My default is to say, yes. We should, um, but there's there's so many objections that I can think of that come to mind. So, just for instance, I remember asking a prominent uh, scholar about when the confession says that God created things in the space of uh, six days. Um, does that, you know, when you look at the text of Genesis one and two, it kind of like you have all those you know classic debates about what a day means and all that sort of thing. Um, 
but in the in the confession, they don't use the Hebrew word yom. Uh, they just say in the space of six days. Uh, and I remember hearing um, I, w- I won't name names. Uh, I remember hearing one uh, prominent trustworthy scholar say, "Oh yeah, they absolutely meant six literal twenty-four hour days." And there's no way they could even have conceived of anything otherwise. And then uh, another prominent scholar who I really appreciate said, oh no, you can totally take kind of a literary framework view of, of that and still be full on board with the confession. Just, just choose to interpret it that way. And it kind of like the, the, the text of the scripture, uh, the text of the confession itself leave open that, op- that, that option, even, even if the historiographical question is settled that it didn't mean that the words they used allow for that. I feel kind of uncomfortable with that idea of like, I can take their words knowing full well that they meant a, but I can rationalize how it could, I could affirm those words as B and say that I'm saying the same thing. Uh, I just find that kind of disingenuous. And um, I would, I think I would say the same thing about the creeds as well. Like if you know that if there were a way to know what they intended by rational soul and body, and you somehow find a way to affirm those words, but vacate them of the human authorial intent <laughs> as best we can discern it, um, then it seems disingenuous to me. Um, it seems like we're kind of saying we're inhabiting a tradition when in fact we aren't, at least on those points. And so that's kind of my, my two cents. So Garrett, to follow up on that, um, I think when it comes to like the, the rational soul and body thing, the authorial intent from what I can tell seems not to be, I need to put forward this particular anthropology, but to say, whatever it is that Jesus assumed in the incarnation is all that it is to be human. He wasn't lacking a human part. He didn't just come and, and only take on a, a left arm or right arm. He took on everything it meant to be human, all that is there is to human nature. So when you think of it in those terms, and especially if you, even if you read those like Cyril of Alexandria, half the time when he's talking about the incarnation, the way he describes it is the Lord taking on a human body. And he doesn't say anything else. He just leaves it at that. So I do think you in for those particular instances, there are ways to look at the the original authors and say, I think their intent is not to tell me I have to have this particular anthropology, but to tell me that whatever happened in the incarnation, Jesus is taking all of that. He's not lacking the mental life. It's not as if the divine substance is, is replacing or a substitute for a particular part of the human person. He is taking on all of whatever, whatever it means to be human. And I think, though, I think your point is well heeded. Uh, I do wonder. I mean, the whole part of the point of confessionalism is transparency and trust to me. Uh, and if you don't have those things, then you're going to be in a world of hurt. So it seems to me that it would be useful and helpful just to have people more willing to go on record to say, I interpret that in a different way. And as long as there's a consensus agreement to say, yeah, you know what? you don't think it's a literal six days. That's fine. We're all on board saying that it just, we don't have to take it in that literal sense. I mean, at that point, I think you're, you're probably in, in 
an okay standing. I don't have a strong opinion on the six day stuff. So like, I, I'm happy to like have all sorts of theoretical debates about it just because it doesn't really um, bother me which way you go. And I will, for just 30 seconds, I want to address Elijah's question and Joseph's qu- just question because they both came through on the emergentism stuff as it relates to the rational soul body thing. So emergentism would be sort of a, depend. it's kind of a dualist to take on human nature. It's kind of a monist physicalist take on human nature. So basically it, it, you're all just material stuff. And at some sort of sufficient level of complexity, you like generate a soul. Uh, you can talk, depending on the, the account, somebody like William Hasker would say, once the soul is there, it can exist apart from the body. So he's basically a substance dualist at that point. Uh, that has its own unique issues. I think I, I, emergentism for me, there is some intuitive plausibility to it, but I think you get the worst of both worlds with it. Um, uh, because you seem to take on both sets of costs and both sets of challenges and you don't really get the benefit that I think you really are looking for. So I find it difficult to want to have anything with emergentism, though I find it generally plausible. I just think you're taking on a lot of theological problems when you do that. Okay, I'm done. And go ahead. Uh, I was just going to mention the pastor's summit since I know we're all excited to get our tickets to that. Um, I see James Lindsay's on there, all of our favorite, you know, theological hero. I'm kidding. Of course. Have mercy. Um, One year of Edmund is slightly sympathetic towards a more, um, textual reading of these creeds and confessions is um i'll I'll try to create like a parallel and y'all can tell me if you think this is a terrible parallel but like you know when you when you have nicaea and chalcedon there's other issues that they talk about and discuss and even like hand down authoritative quote-unquote authoritative sort of teaching on that we typically don't even care about or even are concerned with and a lot of us would disagree with um and like to take it into the baptist tradition uh, you know, for example, let's just take one issue. Like, you know, a lot of these guys who were involved uh, in the first, uh, you know, 100, 150 years of uh, particular Baptist life anyways, they might have not even believed that we should be singing in church. Um, and so, you know, you've got these issues where, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to, to know how can I pick and choose, you know, what's, what am I going to bring in and what am I not? Um, and then the other thing that I think is challenging, I think we have more, we have more access, uh, in this conversation than we do in the biblical interpretation conversation. But I just think authorial intent is just such a slippery thing. Like it's just hard to nail down. I think it's even more difficult in the conversation of the biblical text because a lot of these authors we don't have any of their other writings. And so we have no idea what they meant when they used that word in some other writing or whatever. Um, and the, but, but the upside we have is that we have the, the divine author uh, backing, you know, that, that text. Uh, but, but I think for me, I'm not saying full, full on hundred percent on board with a textual reading of creeds and confessions, but there's just a little bit of me that's sympathetic to that just because of, how slippery I feel like sometimes nailing down author- authorial intent is. And then also knowing that there were the same people making assertions about other topics 
that I would not affirm and that the church has not traditionally affirmed uh, alongside of those creeds uh, that we that we adopt as orthodox. Yeah, and Morgan, you bring up a good point. Uh, the councils, uh, the early church councils, actually issued authoritative declarations on various documents saying this is in line with the Nicene faith. We affirm this as orthodox and all these things. So it's it's even more than just the creedal formulas themselves that we really need to read. We need to read the anathemas. We need to read uh, Pope Leo's tome. Uh, we need to read Searle's le- letters to Nestorius to really get a full understanding of what is being regarded as like an official interpretation uh, of these things. So yes, I, I, I agree with you on those things. And I wonder if it's almost like a matter of like reception history also plays a role in how we interpret things. Uh-huh. If the church has received it and interpreted it in a particular way for 1500 plus years, seems to me that I'm on solid ground to say that that's what we need to think of it as. Maybe, maybe that's wrong, but just in my puny little brain, that makes sense. I, I, I think that, I think that if you were to overturn that, you would need to have extraordinary cause. Um, so I, I think that there's there's something that just brings humility into the discussion. So, I mean, obviously, as Baptists, there's a, a part of us that says, hey, you know, if the if the consensus view is is unbiblical, it's unbiblical. Um, I, you know, I'm glad Jake's not here to do a whole trail of blood on me. Um, <laughs> but but I mean. So there's there's a sense in which, but I don't think we do that lightly, you know. And I, I think that that if we're if we're saying you know, hey, pedo baptism is incorrect, we also need to do that in in light of um, answering, you know, those objections and saying this is this is why we think we have extraordinary warrant to go against what we see as consensus. So I mean, there's no there's no definitive. You you can't make a once and for all creed um, just because you know interpretation is is tricky, um, and I, I think that I think that um, you know sometimes people will approach these creeds as as boundaries to try to like get around and and finagle their way of inerrancy. And, oh, you know the the scripture is clear. Well. <laughs> well, oftentimes people just mean that my particular interpretation seems obvious to me. Um, so so i think all right samuel perry now i know who the liberals are (laughs) i mean you're the one who said said it wasn't interesting to you and that you don't really care much about (laughs) creation stuff so boring he said (laughs) yeah exactly i mean i at least have been to the creation museum so <laughs> good thing you didn't read all the texts about me defending Sam Perry's statements in those. So I would be in double hot water. <laughs> now that you just admitted it, it's. I actually have a doctoral meeting. I need to prepare for tomorrow with my supervisor to talk about all my liberalism. So that's excellent. I, I've had lots of fun, and I'll see you guys later. See you, Jacob. Peace. So everybody's been listening. I don't know if we want to wrap up. Do we want to wrap up now? Yeah, we can wrap up. So I'll tell everybody who's been listening. We appreciate you taking the time 
to hang out with us. Hopefully this was useful and encouraging in some way. Sometimes it's fun to have sort of this informal format where we just don't know where it goes and we can just kind of hang out as friends. Uh, I know that when I listen to other podcasts, sometimes I listen to podcasts just because I like the friendship angle and it can encourage me in those ways. So that's what this is supposed to be a little bit of. Most of our stuff is more very organized, very on, on target. This, not so much. So hopefully it's useful. Um, and we appreciate all of you who listen and all of you who just engage in all sorts of ways with us, whether that be in the Slack community or online in different areas. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to all meet our listeners one day. We'll have to have a conference or something with no speakers so that we can be truly uh, ecumenic, or what is it? Uh, egalitarian, as all of our haters would say. Sorry. <laughs> I'm having a good time here. So uh, we, we'll, we'll hopefully meet everybody at some point in the future. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and professional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.